We'll hear argument first this morning in case 18725, Barton versus Barr. Mr. Unikowski. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question before the Court today is, what does it mean for an offense to render an alien inadmissible for purposes of the stop-time rule? The Court should hold that an offense renders an alien inadmissible if the immigration judge finds that the offense renders the alien inadmissible at the removal hearing that precipitates the need to apply the stop-time rule. If the Court disagrees with that and agrees with the Eleventh Circuit that inadmissible is a status, it should hold that an alien acquires that status when the alien is capable of being charged with inadmissibility. In this case, neither condition is satisfied. Petitioner was not found inadmissible. He wasn't capable of being found inadmissible. Therefore, he was not rendered inadmissible. So I'd like to begin this morning with a concession the government makes at pages 29 and 30 of its brief, which I think narrows the issues in this case somewhat. So the government concedes that when the words inadmissible and removable, which are the crucial words in the stop time rule, when those words are used in a statute that has a connection to the alien's own removal proceeding, they're a reference to the charge against the alien at that proceeding. They're, they're not a status. So the government agrees that in those contexts, its proposed interpretation of the words inadmissible and removable in the stop time rule is incorrect. So in Section 1226, the mandatory detention statute, that says that an alien who is inadmissible by reason of having committed an offense under Section 1182 is subject to mandatory detention, the government agrees there that inadmissible is a reference to inadmissible at the proceeding, not just the status of being inadmissible. The government says that's natural in that context, and we agree, because that's a statute with a relationship to the alien's removal. Same thing in Section 1252. That's the jurisdiction-stripping statute that says that courts of appeals don't have jurisdiction to hear petitions for review by an alien who is removable for certain specified reasons. There, too, the government agrees removable is not the status. It's a reference to the actual charge at the hearing. And they say that's natural in that context because the statute has a connection to the alien's removal proceeding. So the question in this case boils down to whether the government has put forward a sufficient case for holding that the words inadmissible and removable in the stop time rule mean something different from what it concedes they mean in these adjacent or nearby statutes addressing the same subject matter. And I don't think the government has put forward that case, because I think that many of the contextual clues that apply in the nearby statutes also apply in the stop time rule, or at least there isn't a sufficient reason for construing those statutes differently. So, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that the stop-time rule is applied only in the context of removal proceedings after the immigration judge has just decided whether an alien is inadmissible or removable. So there's like two steps. At step one, the immigration judge decides whether an offense renders the alien inadmissible or removable. And then the immigration judge decides eligibility for cancellation. That's not quite true, though. Some aliens concede um, removability and are seeking cancellation. Yes, that's correct. And then there are some that are ordered um, who are found inadmissible uh, or removable not on the basis of a crime at all. So that's true, but in — So you have two classes of people that aren't covered by the way you're reading admissibility now. No, but there's still a threshold finding of inadmissibility or removability. It's true there might not be a hearing, there might be a concession, but in the most typical cases, it's based on an offense. And in every case, there's just been a, a holding, an adjudication that for some reason the alien is inadmissible or but could, could I possibly get an argument off the table? Do you really want to argue that the concept of inadmissibility is not a status? 
I think that the word varies on, depending on the context in which it's being used. So I okay. can't. Well, that's a different question. But is is or is not the concept of inadmissibility a status? I think that it can, the word can mean two things. I mean, I, I agree with you that the ELE sounds like a status, at least in some context. I can't, I'm not, I'm not conceding, I'm, I'm not going to argue something that's obviously wrong. There are certain contexts in which the way you, using that word, it sounds like a status. So I agree. If you go to your lawyer before the hearing and say, hey, I want to go to Niagara Falls, am I inadmissible? In that context, it's talking about a status. That's clear. But I also think it's clear that in certain contexts, when you're talking about the removal proceeding itself. Give me, a, give me an example in ordinary speech where inadmissibility is not a status. Uh, you just gave the example of, uh, you just gave an example yourself where it would be. Yeah. Somebody's in Europe and is going to buy a, a ticket to come to the United States. If that person it, it, it does not satisfy, that person is inadmissible. That person is inadmissible at the time when the ticket is purchased so or at the I, time when the person gets on a bus in <coughs> Central America to come to the southern border or if evidence is inadmissible. It's inadmissible before the attorney tries to admit it at trial, right? That, so that's true, but it seems to me that when you're using the word in the context of talking about the removal proceeding itself, what you really mean is inadmissible at that proceeding. So again, I think 1226 is a perfect example of this. Okay, so I mean, yeah. that, that's the, what I want to get off the table. So it is a status. Well, you may or may not agree with me. I gather that you don't. But if I think it is a status, then the question is what is the context in which this status can be assessed, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm comfortable con- calling it a status if we define the relevant status as status of inadmissible at that proceeding, as opposed to status of Okay, then you have to show why, in the context of uh, a, uh, a removal proceeding for an LPR who has not left the country, uh, th- there cannot be a, an assessment of inadmissibility of this status. You have to show why that is so. So I think it's for many of the same reasons why we agree with the adjacent statute that that is so. So first of all, just contextually, it seems to me it's quite natural when at at step one of the proceeding, there's an adjudication, maybe it's conceded, but there's some kind of adjudication that the alien is in fact inadmissible or removable. And then the next step, the immigration judge is asked to decide, does this offense render (coughs) the alien inadmissible or removable? I just think it's natural to talk about what just happened rather than this new proceeding that imagines what would have happened if the person had left and tried to come back. And I also think that the the opening stanza of the cancellation of removal statute is actually quite good for us. It it says something to the effect of, uh, the attorney general may cancel removal for an alien who is inadmissible or deportable. That's actually quite a lot like 1226, the mandatory detention statute, in that it has removal and then inadmissible and deportable sort of in the same breath. Do you dispute the fact that there are other provisions in the immigration laws in which inadmissibility is assessed at a time other than uh, when uh, an alien is seeking admission to the country. So, I, yes, I do, and I, let me walk through all of those, because I don't, it's almost like the exception that proves the rule in the cases that the government addresses. So the primary example is adjustment of status or adoption of a temporary status, which I think is sort of a, a constructive admission. Like you don't have to leave the country and come I mean, back. I mean, when you say it's a constructive admission, constructive is a word that lawyers use in an effort to show that something that is not something else actually is that other thing, right? 
Yeah, but the point is you're, you're trying to get into a new status, which is sort of like trying to get into the, a new country. Like the status is as if you're being admitted into a new status. It's not like a latent — the government says that in 1996 this, like, latent status was conferred on him that just stuck with him for all these years, which is different from when you're affirmatively seeking eligibility for a new status, which is kind of like affirmatively seeking eligibility to enter the country. So I, I think that's just conceptually different. And by the way, that doesn't apply to, to LPRs like Petitioner. There actually is no other concept, context in which the concept of inadmissibility has any ref- relevance to an LPR. The when, government also has — When can uh, an LPR um, fit, the, fit that status? You say if he leaves the country for more, more than 180 days? Yes. What other situ- in what other situations can — uh, a lawfully uh, permanent resident be subject to the status of ineligibility. So there's. I'm sorry. So there's several enumerated criteria. Probably the one most relevant to this case is that the statute provides that if you've committed a crime on the inadmissibility list under 1182 and then you leave, you need to seek admission again. Now, there's one wrinkle on the specific facts of this case, that that statute doesn't apply to Petitioner because he committed his crime before the IRERA's enactment. But in the general mind run, and we're not relying on that as the basis to decide this case. But what else besides leaving the country and coming back? Um, so you're leaving for 180 days, abandonment of the status. I think one of them is committing a crime in a foreign country. And, and there's a couple of other ones. There's like a list of enumerated criteria in Section 1101. Could you go back and finish your answer to Justice Alito? I understand um, he asked about the other provisions yes. that um, refer just to a status. Yeah. And you mentioned the first one, and right. that seems somewhat logical. But how about the other? So I think that the only other ones are these two for these very narrow classes for, for temporary uh, aliens, like certain entrants before 1982 and something about special agricultural workers. And actually, those provisions in the, in the sections talking about adjustment of status for those people, it also says that if they're inadmissible, they also have to leave. Their status is terminated. Those statutes were enacted many years, I think in the 80s, many years before ERIRA. So, I mean, it's different subject matters. It's not about LPR. They're, in, they're enacted at different times. I think they're less relevant than these cluster of statutes about removal, which were all or almost all enacted in ERIRA itself. They all address the same subject matter. To me, if you're going to look at consistent usage, those are the ones to use. I actually think that the, our best argument on consistent usage is maybe just the, the intro to the cancellation of removal statute, and I, I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but I'd just like to elaborate a little bit. It, it says the Attorney General may cancel removal for an alien who is inadmissible or removable or deportable, excuse me. And so, like, that's just like 1226. You're talking about removal and inadmissible in the same sentence. And so it just seems quite natural that inadmissible is a reference to inadmissible at the hearing, right? And it, you can't actually cancel removal. But the point, the point of the overall provision is to allow cancellation of removal for uh, those who've been in the U.S. for a long time uh, and have had clean records. You agree so far? Well, clean, it doesn't have to be completely clean. Right, but, no, but, but yes. gen- generally yes. clean. Okay. Right. And on the clean record point, the statute excludes those who have aggravated felonies, Mm -hmm. right? And then it excludes arguably two more categories, those who have the list of crimes that make you deportable or the list of crimes that make you admissible. So those are three categories that seem to suggest uh, if, if those have been committed within the first seven years for those latter two, right? The aggravated felony at any time, 
the deportable crimes, seven years, the, the uh, inadmissible crimes, seven years. Why isn't that the overall structure to look at uh, that makes you uh, ineligible for cancellation of removal, if you understand the structure? Well, I, I think the structure uh, has a different conclusion. I think it's, it's quite relevant that for, for this aggravated assault offense here, Congress has actually decided that that's not a basis to deport him, period. So, like, it doesn't interrupt his continuous residence in the literal sense that ICE can't come to his house and, and deport him for it. He, Congress has decided he gets to stay here, so... Right, but the, the point is you've already been determined that you're inadmissible or deportable. Yes. Now the question, are you eligible for cancellation of that removal? And the two things that Congress said we should, that IJ should look at are, have you been here for a sufficient period of time, and have you not committed certain crimes? Aggravated felonies, deportable offenses within seven years, inadmissible offenses within seven years. If you've committed anything within those uh, three categories, you're no longer going to be eligible for cancellation of removal. See, I, I'm not sure that's the right way to read the statute, because what it says is to, to stop the clock, it's got to be a crime referred to in 1182, that's the inadmissibility list, and then that renders you inadmissible or removable. So the way I, I look at that is that the first part of that, the, referred to in 1182, that's the category of crimes that's capable of stopping the clock. And then there's the second part of the statute, which has what we see as, okay, not only does it have to be on this list of crimes, that's the first part, but it has to have this particular type of consequence, which is rendering you inadmissible or, or removable. And, in fact, that leads to an argument we make about, about surplusage, that it, it makes more sense to view the statute that way than the government's way, because uh, under the government's position, at least until it filed its brief in this case, it conceded that the removable portion of the statute was, was total surplusage. Uh, the only way it can keep to its current position is by disavowing a BIA precedent, Garcia, correct? That's correct. And not only does it disavow it, but, I mean, I, I don't think that that's a it's, a it's a very convoluted explanation. It's not very plausible. I mean, the government's position depends on this theory that what Congress was trying to do was distinguish between crimes that are expressly accepted from 1182 and that are merely not listed in 1182. And the exceptions, that's the, the reason for the removal clause is to get these exceptions in, right? So 1182 says something like, all aliens except juveniles who commit crimes involving moral turpitude are inadmissible. The government's view is that that's, like, very different from just saying all adults, even though those mean the same thing, because, like, juveniles are in the exceptions clause, and therefore that stops the clock for purposes of cancellation of removal. That's a very convoluted scheme. And, especially, and it's somewhat unlikely that the removable clause, which seems to be talking about removable aliens, was actually put in to get in those exceptions. It seems to me now that the government has abandoned Chevron deference, and what we're doing is just kind of lining up the two interpretations next to each other and seeing which one's better. I mean, our understanding of why the statute's written the way it is is more plausible. We say it's make a, Before you get to that, you make a fleeting reference to Chevron in your reply brief. So do you want us to defer to something? You want us to defer to the BIA on, the on anything? Yes. Or on just the, on the decision that you like? Just on the decision that we like, Your Honor. <laughs> well, that's so, what the government is doing. Yeah, so... It likes this decision, but I it doesn't a, like Garcia. I have a principal reason for that, Your Honor. First of uh, all, I'm sure. <laughs> the government expressly waives Chevron deference uh -huh. on, the question, on this Gerardo case. And so 
that's, that's good for us. I mean, it makes it much easier for us that now there's no Chevron deference. And we walk through in our brief that the arguments given in this Hirado case are clearly wrong. So this Court's cases hold that even if a statute's ambiguous, you don't defer to an agency decision that's clearly wrong, which I think is true for this Hirado case. The government doesn't even try to defend it. They bury it in a footnote. Well, like, what about the simple, but it has a certain appeal, argument the government is made, this is a very dense statute, that if we ask why would Congress — why wouldn't Congress want the clock to stop when an alien has committed a qualifying offense showing that he has abused the hospitality of the United States? Yeah, so I'd like to turn to purpose, actually. That it might be a good time to do that. I think that actually our interpretation makes sense, and we have very good reasons for why Congress would have wanted to do what it did. So first of all, I think it, it's at least somewhat relevant that Congress made the express decision that he shouldn't be, be deported for this offense. It's true that he's deportable for other offenses, but Congress has also made the express decision that those other offenses shouldn't foreclose cancellation of removal. So if both of those things are true, if you have this one offense which Congress didn't even think was serious enough to deport him at all, and then the other offenses which do make him deportable, Congress has decided to leave the door open a crack for cancellation of removal, to me that sounds like Congress kind of wanted this person to be eligible for discretionary relief. He doesn't have to get it, but at least have the door open. Rather than the scheme, or as the government contends, this conviction which wasn't even serious enough to make him eligible for deportation simpliciter kind of pops back into relevance and springs over the crimes for which he is deportable and becomes the, the basis for saying that he's subject to, to mandatory deportability. And just one other thing about I'm not really understanding that. Yes. Uh, so there's a serious offense that makes you deportable. Yes. Okay, now the question is, are you eligible for cancellation yes. of removal? And in looking at that, any blemish, uh, even if it doesn't rise to the level of something that might have made you deportable, is a problem, Congress suggested, by broadening the list of things that could make you ineligible for cancellation of removal beyond those things that just make you uh, deportable in the first instance. Why isn't that a better way to look at it? Because it didn't do that. The, the reason that we're all here today is that the crimes that made him deportable, Congress decided that they actually don't foreclose eligibility for, for a discretionary relief. That's why we're only looking at this crime that didn't make him deportable. They don't on their <coughs> own, but, but if you have something else. No, but it, the, the scheme is, it's not like it's an aggravating characteristic based on other things. Like there's, you apply a test and there's certain convictions that apply. And then it, it's, you can certainly use the same conviction for both in principle. It's not like you, you take one crime and then you look at what other crimes he has. And so it, it just the, – the, the crimes that stop the clock just don't include the crimes for which he was found deportable. So it, it's just a little bit strange. Like, you, you'd think that – so he has his firearms conviction and the aggravated